I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Luke again. Last week we talked about the anointing of God having a purpose. I'm going to recap a couple things just in case you weren't here last week because it's important that we have a foundation. Number one, the anointing is not a feeling, is not a special goo, is not Holy Ghost glitter, even though if he wants to pour out glitter on us, I'm fine with I'm not, uh, he can do whatever he wants to do. I prefer he does something else, but you know, if he wants to do that, he can do that. No, it's more than just something that you feel. The anointing of God cannot be separated from the Spirit of God. So the anointing of God is the empowering, the working of the Holy Spirit for something. And uh, thank God we've received the Holy Spirit. In fact, the Bible says that the anointing abides within you. So in the Old Testament, there were moments of the Spirit descending on someone and then leaving. A prophet, the Spirit came on him and he prophesied. David saying things like, please don't take your spirit from me. These were things people said because the Holy Spirit had not been given to them. He was working on the earth. He was using people, but he had not been given to them. So a king was anointed by God to be a king. But you have a a circumstance like King Saul who, uh, because of his decisions, um, one after another, just to reject and rebel against God because of his fear of people, then at some point God says, okay, I'm taking my hands off you. And the Spirit of God, even though you can see the Spirit in his life later on, the Spirit of God departed and lifted off of him, and he instead was oppressed by evil spirits in in that period of time. Except when David would come with his harp and play, and the the presence of the Holy Spirit on David's music would cause the evil spirits to, to flee. In the New Testament... We don't have a Holy Spirit that's, that's coming and going and coming and going. We have been given the Holy Spirit. The Bible says it's the pledge of our adoption. So as long as you are a child of God, you have a pledge of your adoption. That's how you know you're saved is the Holy Spirit. Somebody might say, well, well, does that mean only Pentecostals are saved? Or what, does that mean only people that pray in tongues are saved? No, I said, if you have the Holy Spirit. Now, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit, when we ask the, the God to fill us with his Spirit, that's, that's something we see in the Bible, but that's not the first time you receive the Spirit. The Bible says, how can you get saved without the Holy Spirit? So when you're saved, you receive the Spirit of God. That's your pledge of adoption. You might, not, you might not have any evidence of the Holy Spirit right away. You may, I mean, no signs and wonders taking place, but you receive Jesus, you've got his spirit. But thank God, we know we want to be full of the spirit. And when there's a fullness of the spirit, there's evidence of the spirit in your life. And so often t- at times as charismatics, we, we look for the gifts of the spirit. Thank God, I, I love them. That should never be a bad thing, Right? I don't care who abuses it. It should not be a bad thing because if it's a gift of the Spirit, it's from the Holy Spirit. If it's from the Holy Spirit, that means it's of God and nothing bad comes from God. Yeah? If it's bad, it didn't come from Him. True? So never mock or or scorn something that God is doing. You know, there's fakes out there, there's flakes out there. But when God is doing something, if it's a gift of the Spirit, it's good. That said... Listen, we, we shouldn't get so, just so 
just so over on this end looking for the gifts of the Spirit that we forget that the, that the greatest evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life is not all, always the razzle-dazzle, but rather the fruit of the Spirit in your life. And we should be looking for that as well. That's all of that laying a foundation for the fact that, that, that I, I believe in these times where we've gathered together and we've lifted our eyes to heaven and we're worshiping God. I believe that in those moments, there is a very real sense of the presence of God. We know that God is with us wherever we go, right? We know he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. David said, even if I were to go to the depths of the grave, you'd still be there. Where could I run from your presence? Where could I go that you wouldn't be there? Nevertheless, there's something beyond the omnipresence of God, and you felt it. You've known it. It's the manifest, that tangible presence of God. And I believe that's a, that's a time when you have just finally surrendered and opened yourself up. Now, some people, maybe they hadn't surrendered at all, but they walked in the room while other people are glorifying God, and they felt something. We've had that story. You know, some of you that are here today, uh, you were drawn and you came into a building while people were worshiping God and you felt something. Well, that was the presence of God. And it's not always, it doesn't always show up the same. So we talk about the anointing. What is the anointing? That's the Holy Spirit. It's his working, it's his empowering, it's his empowering presence to accomplish his will. And so when we look in Luke chapter 4, just like we did last week, he says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me too. And he names all these things that he's going to do. And what we drew from that last week was that the anointing is more than the goosebumps. The anointing has a purpose. Now hear me, I don't discount the goosebumps. Because what, what am I talking about goosebumps? I mean, I know faith is not feeling, and I know that, come on, you guys know that, that I'm not saying, you know, that, that just getting chills, and like we said last week, if that were a sign of the presence of God, then Disney is anointed, you know? The chills, the chills don't always mean anything. The goosebumps don't always mean anything. That said, I know that I have been changed time and time again in the tangible manifest presence of God. I know I've been healed in those times. I know I've heard the voice of God clearly in those times. I know I've been delivered in those times. What I'm saying is that we need the upper room experience. But the upper room should never stay in the upper room. Upper room's got to go to the streets. If the 120 just stayed in the upper room for five days praying in tongues, 3,000 people wouldn't have come to Jesus, Right? You have to have that. But if they had just gone to the street and just said, oh, maybe we'll tell some people, they wouldn't have been empowered to do it. So they needed to gather together in the upper room. And then they needed to spread out. So in, in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John come back to the church. They come back to, it says, their company, their, their fellow believers, and they pray, and they ask God for boldness, and they ask God to do signs and wonders through his name. And, and God answers them by filling them again with the Holy Spirit. Same group that's been filled with the Spirit is now filled again, and then it says the evidence of the Holy Spirit amongst them, it, the great grace of God that's on them, causes them to, to get into a place where they don't think anything that they own is theirs, but they're sharing, they're meeting needs, they're reaching out, and it says many people are coming to Jesus in this time. So once again, it started with a gathering of believers, and then it spread out into the city. So we need these moments of gathering and seeking the Lord together. You know that you need these moments. You need these times of refreshing, of equipping, but it can't stay in the building 
It's got to go out, right? It can never just stay. So I'm not going to say one is better than the other. Those times where you know and you sense the presence of God, they've changed me. They've defined me. Those moments have set my life on a certain course. But if all it ever was was a good feeling, then it would have been useless. God had to do something in me and he has to do something in you that will cause you to go. And so the anointing of God is more than just, wow, that felt cool. The anointing of God has a purpose. And we're going to see that in what we're going to read again in Luke 4. Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me. The spirit of the Lord has anointed me. We, we read in Acts 10 last week that he said, you've heard of Jesus of Nazareth. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. The presence of God in your life is what's going to bring about miracles. The presence of God in your life is what's going to bring about deliverance. The presence of God in your life is what's going to set people free with the gospel. He says here, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me because, or the spirit of the Lord rather is upon me because he anointed me too. So the anointing has a purpose. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What we're going to do in the next few weeks, last week we talked about that idea. And what we're going to do in the next few weeks is for each one of these things, we're going to dig into it. So we're going to dig into what does it mean to be anointed to preach the gospel to the poor. Next week, we're going to talk about what does it mean to proclaim release to the captives and so on and so forth because we want to see, I want you to see that this is not just Jesus' mission on earth when he walked the earth. This is still Jesus' mission. And his method is by his spirit anointing you to do the very same thing he was anointed to do. Like we said, the beginning of Acts, Luke's second letter, which is just part two of part one. Part one was the book of Luke. Part two is the book of Acts. It's meant to be read together. And the book of Acts begins by saying, this is all, in the, he said, in my first book, I told you all that Jesus began to do in his ministry on earth. So the, the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the 40 days with his disciples, and the ascension was all part of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry did not end with the resurrection. Jesus' ministry did not end with him going to the clouds. Jesus' ministry was just beginning, and it continues through his church. So has the Spirit of the Lord anointed you for something? And the answer is yes. And I'm going to tell you right now, I fully believe that he has anointed you to do all of this. That you're not just like, well, which one's me? Which one am I anointed to do? All of that. That's all of us. We all carry the ministry of Jesus. A lot of people talk about their ministry. This is my ministry. And I, I understand that and I get that. But you have to know we don't own a ministry. There is no ministry that belongs to you or to me. We carry his ministry. You don't have a calling. The Bible says you are his calling. You're part of his calling. You've inherited his calling. Have you been called? Yes. Scripture talks about you remembering your calling. But in that sense, it's talking about the fact that you were called out of darkness into light. You were called out of the world. You were called into his family. Do you have different gifts? Yes. Do we have different ways that, this, that God's going to use us? Yes. In fact, when I look at this, 
and see the anointing to preach the gospel to the poor. There's like innumerable amounts of, of, of ways that God can do that, right? That's not just one way to do that. And God will use each and every one of you to accomplish that mission in different ways. In fact, even better than that, rather than all of us just kind of saying, well, this is my way and that's your way, that's cool. But I believe that we are, as a body, our diversity of function actually is meant to complement one another, is actually meant to work together. Like a runner getting to the finish line, his arms are doing one thing, his legs are doing another, his eyes are doing another thing, his lungs are doing something, but they are all working together in their own ways to accomplish the same goal. So this isn't just like, you say potato, I say potato. This is, in order for my left hand to do this, I need my right hand to do this. It's God orchestrating the body as he desires to accomplish this mission. This is still the mission of Jesus. Some people say, well, Jesus did miracles to prove he was the Messiah. Sure, those signs did prove. That's why they're called signs. They did prove that he was Messiah. But like I've said to you before, if all he needed to prove was that he had power, he could have killed people as well as healed them. He could have given some people leprosy. He could have called down fire. He could have just thrown a mountain into the sea and said, look what I can do. I'm the son of God. But everything Jesus did was undoing the curse and the effects of the curse on people's lives. And when we look at Jesus, we begin to see the character of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He did not say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father's nice side. You've seen the Father's good side. He says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Colossians said he is the direct, perfect representation of the Father. Which means that you don't need to see another angle. He showed you the Father. John says, no one's seen the Father, but Jesus, he has explained him. So you want to know what God's doing on the earth? Same thing Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago. How can we be a part of that mission? Because when you get on his mission, then I guarantee if you're on his mission and, you're, and you've got that humility to be used by God, you will have his anointing. A lot of people are looking for the anointing. The anointing is not something that's difficult to, to find. But for everybody that will humble their heart and surrender their life to Jesus and say, I want to be used by you. He's gonna, you want to get on board with this mission? His spirit will be with you. I believe that fully. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's a powerful statement. And uh, it you know, there's been debate for thousands of years as to what was he talking about? Was he just talking about people who didn't have as much money as the next guy? Was he talking about spiritual poverty? Was he talking about this or that? And uh, I believe that there's elements of all these things that are true. Because the best way for us to interpret this verse is to watch what Jesus said and watch what he did. If he said the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor then you can probably look at what he said and figure out what that means. You guys agree? Yes. I mean, I don't think there's just a collection of hidden sermons that never leaked. I mean, there's a lot he said that never got written in the book. John said, if we put everything that Jesus did and said in books, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold them. That said, I think if you read the Gospels, you begin to understand how Jesus fulfilled this. Mm -hmm. 
He did every single one of these things. So one of the best ways is just to look at Jesus' ministry. How did he interact? What did he say? What did he do? The other way is to look back. See, this was a quotation from the book of Isaiah. Look back at the book of Isaiah. Look at, we're going to look at Isaiah 61. Begin to look at what that said then and see how it was fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I believe this. When you see this word poor, we, there's no question Jesus went to the physically poor. Amen? He absolutely did. But he also went to those that were in a place of spiritual poverty. Now, spiritual poverty sounds like a bad thing, and sometimes it is. But uh, in the scripture, if you look in, like, for instance, in Isaiah where this comes from, most of the time that the word poor is used, it's not talking about financial. It's not talking about how much money they have. Most of the time in the book of Isaiah, when God talks about the poor, he's actually talking, it's a word that means to crouch down to need something. Like a place of supplication that you are, you are low and you're looking for something. And most of the time, God calls it a good thing that you're poor in spirit. In other words, that you recognize you need something. Do you get what I'm saying? We're in this place where we understand that um, he is the river that never runs dry. So he says, if you'll drink of me, you'll never thirst again. <laughs> we will never thirst again doesn't mean I won't thirst for him. It means I won't go thirsty. Do you understand what I'm saying? So he says, if you eat of me, you'll never go hungry again. Eat the food that I give you and you'll never be hungry again. He doesn't say you won't keep eating. We're going to keep eating at his table, but we're never going to go hungry. You understand the difference? Every single one of you gets hungry, right? Mm -hmm. You all get hungry, but I, I would be surprised if there's too many people in this room that have gone hungry in the past month. Do you know what I'm saying? That needed food and couldn't get it. So when we come to Jesus, we have a hunger for him. The Bible says, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because they will be filled. So that place of hunger and thirst puts you in a position to receive from God. So this word in the Greek and in the Hebrew where it originally comes from in the book of Isaiah can often be associated with the word humble. It's, and often it's translated as humility, a place where you say, I realize that I am not self-sufficient. I need something. We see Jesus ministering to those that had physical needs, but also telling them, listen, your physical need, I want to meet that, but I want to go beyond that. So when he fed the 5,000, and he fed the 4,000. Everybody was pretty excited. And then it said a bunch of people just followed him just, just for more food. And he says, you better, he says, I want you to seek the bread that leads to life. So what did he do? He met them right where their perceived need was. What, what's my need that I think I have? I'm hungry. He met them right where their need was. He didn't say, how shallow of you. How shallow of you to, to ask me for something physical. No, he, he met that need. He was there. When Judas went off and left to betray Jesus, everyone assumed that Judas was going to feed the poor. They wouldn't have assumed that if that wasn't part of Judas's job description. We know that. But we also know that Jesus was revealing and exposing a deeper poverty which was that they needed something more than just tomorrow's bread. They needed the bread of life. Mm -hmm. I believe that to this day, that God still meets people at their place of need. Many of you have experienced that. 
You've experienced somebody who had a physical need and, 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 and God used you to meet that need and then through them experiencing the love of Jesus and, that, and the power of God and that opening up their heart, then they were in a place of being able to receive something even deeper and greater. Because at the end of the day, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? If it, if, it's not, if it doesn't profit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul, then it certainly doesn't profit you to gain a sandwich and lose your soul. Nevertheless, God will meet your need. God meets people's needs, and he often uses that as a door to their heart. So you've seen people who are hardened to God. They don't want to hear. They don't, I don't want to hear your message. And yet they were in a place, they got to a place of need. They got to a place where maybe they needed healing in their life. They're dying. Maybe they, they got to a place where their job was doing just fine and then they lost their job and all of a sudden they needed a miracle and, uh, to, to be able to make it to the next month. And you see God use a believer to meet that need, whether it was through a miracle or whether it was through the miracle of generosity, whatever happened, God healing them or God delivering them or God providing for them, that, that God didn't say, you shallow person, I'm not doing that. No, he, he, he would meet them right where they thought they needed something, but then he showed them a deeper need. When he did that for all of us, didn't he? I want you to read something with me in Isaiah 61. Could, could we, um, do you think we could, pick up some clues from Jesus' ministry to see how he preached the gospel to the poor. All right? How did he, how did he interact? Who did he talk to and how did he do it? You don't see Jesus turning away anybody, but you do see him rebuking people who thought they have it all together, right? When John sends disciples and says, hey, are you the one or should we be looking for somebody else? Jesus responds to him and says, look around. Tell him what you've seen. The lame walk. The blind see. And he says, all of these things, that, you know, it says lepers are cleansed, all this. But he says, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So you could see that the good news was being preached to people that had been brought down. And an understanding that the society that Jesus walked in was very segregated. There was a pretty strong class system. If you were looking in most of the places in the Bible, when they talk about somebody in a low position in society, when they talked about the poor, it wasn't usually talking about somebody that didn't have a job or somebody that wasn't willing to, to, to get a job. It was often talking about people that were, for generations, institutionally poor, oppressed, when you see Mary sing her song, she finds out she's going to have a baby. She goes and visits Elizabeth. Elizabeth tells her, the baby inside me jumped when, when you just got near me. Mary begins to prophesy and praise the Lord. How many of you have read Mary's song? Right? Do you ever read the part where she's like, and those that think they've got it all together are going to get theirs? Like, sometimes you're like, whoa, chill out, Mary. In fact, let me read it to you, just while you're holding your place in Isaiah. She says in, in Luke chapter 1, 
And Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. I want you to hear that. He has regard for, his, for the humble state. In other words, the lowly state of his bond slave. She, had, she was in a place of humility where she had said, I need you. Where she didn't think she had it all together. Not only that, but she was put in a humble state by her circumstances. So, I mean, we all know that there, there could be arrogant poor people just as much as arrogant rich people, right? We understand that. But Mary was in a place where she was, she was not from a fancy place. She was not from a fancy family. She was not from a place that would be regarded as this is where the king's going to come from. If it had not been prophesied, that's where the king was coming from. It didn't look kingly, her circumstances. She said, you had regard for my humble circumstance, the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. And mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of heart. Thoughts of their heart. So I want you to hear that. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Did you notice that when Jesus preached the gospel, who rejected the gospel? Those that thought they had it all together. Those that felt they didn't have a need. Now, we all know they did have a need. Yeah? So when the, when the woman breaks that perfume over Jesus' feet, she wipes it with her hair. She's, she's understandably thankful she's even crying on his feet the people at the table say don't you know what kind of woman this is and jesus says she understands how much she's been forgiven and she understands because she's been forgiven she loves me so her understanding of her need for jesus produced a love for jesus right but remember the people at the table and he goes Though, I mean, in another place, he said, it's the sick that need a hospital, not the well. Here's the, here's the ironic thing. The people that thought they were well needed the hospital just as badly, if not more so. When Jesus says she understands she's been forgiven much, everybody at the table that's mocking her needs as much mercy as she needs. They just don't know it. The difference is this lady knows it. And one of the reasons she knows it is because society has put their foot on her head and said, you're not worth anything. So she's got no pretense of having it together. We've experienced that. I've been in places where people are broken and wrecked and messed up. And you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of obstacles to the gospel. But I'll tell you one thing that's not an obstacle. They usually know they need something. In a city like this, God will preach to the poor, the rich, the lame, the body, everybody. But there's a lot of people who say, I got a good job, I got a good family, I do good things, I don't need them. So there's a poor of spirit that says, I need you, that not everybody has. I've met people who had no money and still were arrogant about it. Still said, I don't need anything, I've always taken care of myself. We, for generations, we've taken care of ourselves. And although they were poor financially, they did not have that poorness of spirit that said, I need something. Nevertheless, society had put her in a position where she understood, I need something. Mary says, he scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thr thr thrones. 
He has exalted those who were humble. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. What does that mean? Mary, are you just, is it revenge time? Are you just like, those, those punks up in the palaces? I mean, was, was Mary just the original punk rocker? Just like, you know, fight the man, man. I mean, like, bring him down. Was she just, you know, God save the queen? <laughs> you know, like, what was, what was her message? She's prophesying. She's not just saying this. She's prophesying. So this is God talking through a woman who, let me just tell you, in her society, women didn't really have much to say about anything. Not that they didn't have something to say, but they weren't really allowed to say it. Then, she's an unmarried woman who gets pregnant. Which doesn't exactly up your value in society. And yet she's excited. Finally, you're exalting the humble. She's seeing what's going to happen through the ministry of Jesus. And then she says, you, you will fill the hungry with good things and you send away the rich empty-handed. Why are the rich being sent away empty-handed? Because they don't think they need anything in their hand. When you're hungry, you pull up to the table. The rich man who saw Jesus was a man who recognized Jesus had something, but he thought what he had was worth more than what Jesus was offering, which is poverty indeed, just not the right kind. He's given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. In Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Once again, this is what Jesus was reading. Because the Lord, or you might see that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's because that is not the word Adonai or boss or chief in Hebrew. That is the word Yahweh, Jehovah, Yidhevadhe, however you pronounce it, that's what that is. It's not just a God who is somewhere up there bossing things around. This is his name. This is his character. Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. Good news to the afflicted. Sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, of Yahweh. And just because Jesus doesn't keep reading doesn't mean the rest isn't talking about him too. Right? He, he read and then he closed the book and said, this is fulfilled. But that doesn't mean the rest isn't talking about him as well. He says, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So that they will be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord or of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. Let's stop there for a minute. You sent me to bring good news to the afflicted. Now, once again, in the, in the original language, this means somebody that's low, that's crouching, that's looking for something. It's somebody who's definitely humble, but it, but it, it seems to imply somebody that's had, had stuff done to them. 
That's put them down. They've, their life has, has brought them to a place of lowness, and it hasn't bred good things up until this point. Somebody that's had some, some, some issues, some hurts, some wrongs done to them. You see, in, in this day and age, there were, there were whole families of people that for generations were kept down under the thumbs of somebody else that would take from them. If you've ever read the book of James, we love the part of James that says the prayer of faith will hear the sick. We love the part of James that talks about the power of your tongue. But if you read the part where he rails against the, the folks that have put these guys down and kept them from ever being able to make a living. They're not in trouble because they're rich. They're in trouble because they got rich by making other people poor. Do you understand? See, Abraham was not an evil man. Abraham was a good man. God blessed him. He was very rich, the scripture says. So there's nothing inherently wrong with having a lot of stuff. But when you get a lot of stuff by taking it from someone else and setting up a system so that they can never get above the line, that's wrong. And if you've ever read the prophets, not just your favorite ones, you read Amos, you read Jeremiah, you read Ezekiel, you begin to see that God's not okay with that. His people being oppressed. So what does the good news do? There's going to be a day where Jesus physically takes his place, physically sets up a kingdom, and physically makes all the kings of the earth bow. We're not there yet. We are in a place of his kingdom ruling and reigning. But it's different, right? It's this invisible kingdom. It's this kingdom of his church, the kingdom that has no end. This is the beginning of it. And so... Right now, what Mary's talking about, Jesus isn't at this moment taking, you know, the dictators of the earth and making them bow their knee. There will be a day where they must do that. At this point, he is lifting the poor out of the ashes through the message of the gospel. He's giving them hope again. I want you to see the beauty of Isaiah 61, that there is an anointing to speak to somebody who has been so beaten down by the concerns and the situations of life that they no longer feel that they have hope. I want you to see the beauty of an anointing on your life to begin to speak to someone who's been brought low and say, you don't have to stay low. I want you to see that there's an anointing in your life to come across a dying man with the bread of life and say, I have what you've been looking for. Does that mean you don't give that man actual bread? No. Jesus told us, I mean, one of, the, one of the last things Paul said to the church was don't forget about caring for the poor. It's an important thing, but it's not the only thing. The church should be the number one method of lifting people up out of the ashes. The gospel lifts people up out of the ashes. So I hope you're not confused today, but I see this in a very, in two different ways that flow together. I see this spiritually, and I see this in, in, in tangible reality, right? Mm -hmm. The government is not a solution for anybody. Right. Now, thank God, government does some things right, right? We got here on roads. I mean, it's nice when old people get old and retire, and there's, there's something for them. You know, we all have different, you might have different views on health care, it's nice to have a hospital that works, you know, nice to have good doctors. 
That's not all the government, but those things are good. So we might have differences of opinion on everything the government's supposed to do, but I thank God for a good government. I thank God for a government that in, in, in the best case scenario should, should somehow help make the playing field level, right? That was the beauty of democracy is that somebody could pull up their bootstraps and work hard and they get somewhere. When the government oversteps it, then the government decides who has and who doesn't, right? That all said, forget the government for a minute. The government's not the answer. Government fails people. Government will always fail people. Government will always do things badly. We know that, right? Have you ever looked and said, boy, the government's good at running things? <laughs> you ever just said, you know, you know you want to get something done right? Get a politician on that. No, you've never said that. Thank God for them, but, you know, it's not their greatest skill set. But the church is meant to be the hands and the feet of Jesus, mm -hmm. to use a good cliche, right? I look at this and I see the, when I see afflicted, I know I've met these people. And in some sense, if you look at the root of this word afflicted, we've all been that person. When I look and say, he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Do you know there's an anointing? The anointing is there to bind up those whose heart has been so broken that they no longer feel that they can build on anything. They no longer feel that they have a place to stand. They no longer feel any sense of worthiness or, or they, they don't think that they deserve what God has given them because we don't. But binding up, what does binding up mean? You think about it, it's taking something broken and it's, it's wrapping something around it. It's putting it back together again, making it whole again. And I know, I know, I know, I know. We know these people. You were this person. Afflicted and brokenhearted. Thank God, God doesn't want to leave them in that place. Amen. God doesn't leave people in this place. He, he lifts them up. Jesus didn't step into the mud so that you have a buddy in the mud. He stepped into the mud to bring you out of the mud. Isn't that right? He became one of us. The Bible doesn't say, and Jesus has now been exalted by God and lowered to be amongst us. No, he was lowered and then exalted, and then it says we've been raised up with him and seated in heavenly places. So Jesus comes down to us and became one of us so that we could be like him. But you can't do that unless you're willing to get some mud on you to grab somebody else out. As long as we're up, you know, just, I mean, we're supposed to be seated with him. We're not, we're not moving from that position. That's permanent. But sometimes we feel so holy and, and exalted that, that we forget there's still some people that need rescue. He said, he sent me. He sent me. Which means I had to move from where I was and go to where I needed to be. Where do I need to be? I need to be where they are. Where are the afflicted? Because they need the gospel preached to them. The good news the gospel needs to be preached to those that are hungry for it. It needs to be preached to those that know they need it. it. needs to be preached to those that have been pressed down and crushed by the affairs of life and society itself. They need something and they need Jesus like we all do. He sent me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. I thank God that he can heal broken hearts. But he doesn't just say he anointed me to do it. He sent me to do it. You've got to go somewhere. 
He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To grant, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes. When do we use the term garland? Most, when do you hear that? Christmas, right? Garland. So we really don't get the understanding of what this means. And I know King James says beauty for ashes. But the word here that's in the original Hebrew that's, that's used for garland is a headdress. So when people had, were mourning, whether it been that they had lost somebody or something great, or that they were in a place of such brokenness of, of repentance that they were showing people, this is how, how mournful I am, they would put ashes on their head. Because the head was your place of glory. And you put ashes on your head to show that my glory has been taken, that this is, that, that I'm in mourning, that I'm in sadness, that I'm in brokenness. And he says, God is removing the ashes. I mean, ashes, ashes speak of something that used to be something, right? Mm-hmm. Used to be something, but now it's just ashes. And people are carrying around these ashes on their head from their history and their past, and they just carry it. They carry what's been done to them or what they've done to others. Whether it's the ashes of what people have done to them or what's been taken from them or the ashes of sorrow of what they've done to others, they carry it around and they're so defined by the ashes of their history and ashes of their past. And God instead says, I want to put a garland or literally a turban on your head. And we're all like, I don't really want to wear a turban. But that was something you wore in a time of celebration. That was something that spoke of status. That was something that spoke of joy. And you didn't put a nice turban on your head until you knew that you were clean, until you knew that you had something to rejoice about. So when in the Zechariah's vision, when Joshua the high priest is dirty and he's got asses and he's gross and Satan is accusing him, God rebukes Satan and said, I picked this guy, sends an angel, changes his clothes, takes off his dirty clothes and puts clean clothes on him and puts a turban on his head. To show that this man is clean, this man has reason to celebrate, and this man has authority. And he removes the ashes that have been on our head, and he puts a garland on our head. He says, he has given me the oil of gladness. And what does oil signify? Anointing. The Spirit of God. Jesus, the Bible says, was anointed with gladness above his fellows. There is an anointing to rise up out of the depression, rise up out of the oppression, and rise up out of that place of being beat down and broken down to a place of rejoicing again. And the oil of gladness has nothing to do with your circumstance and everything to do with the anointing. The oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of thanks, a fainting. We could talk about this for a while. Spirit of fainting is when you give up. When you want to give up, you feel like you've got nothing left. When we've ministered in northern communities, we've come face to face with suicide over and over and over again. And that suicide is a direct result of this spirit of fainting. Spirit of fainting says, 
I give up. I can't do this anymore. And we've all felt that in some way or another. I can't do this anymore. What's the answer? God giving you a garment of praise. In a place of praise, you, you all of a sudden know, I can do this. I can do all things through Christ. You can continue. You're not going to give up. You're not going to give in to depression or discouragement. Those things may be all around you, but they can't dominate you. And praise is the beginning and the end of that. Then he says this, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, or the planting of Yahweh that he may be glorified. So I just picture God taking people who are so in a dry land, in a broken place, and replanting them in good soil. Don't you see that's what happens when people get born again and they get planted into a family? Don't you see that's what happens? It happened to you. You got taken out of a place where you, there was dry. You felt like no matter what happened, you couldn't really draw on much. There wasn't, wasn't much to draw on that would give you life. And then God took you and redeemed you. And then he planted you somewhere where you'd be surrounded by people of God. You'd be surrounded by family. You'd be planted in a place where you could grow and life would come. And he replants you so that you're not just a bush, you're an oak. And when storms come, the oak's still there. And when, when rain and thunder comes, and when, even when hurricanes come, the oaks are still there. The planting of the Lord. And here's the deal. When God plants you, he's glorified. And he replants your life and he rebuilds your life. And this is what happens. Then they will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will raise up the former devastations. They will repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. So he undoes the oppression and the, and the, and the history that so dominated people for generations and broken them down. And he says, now that I've healed you, you're going to go back and heal others. You're going to go back and rebuild some things. We worked, you know, on Friday for, you know, Moses wore an orange shirt to school because it was orange shirt day, which signified reconciliation between uh, uh, the, the, the white people and, and the First Nations who had been so broken because of the pain and the hurt that had happened during residential schools. Well, I don't, I don't know all the politics of it. I, don't, I couldn't explain everything. I know there, there's all this complication, but I do know we pray for reconciliation and the healing of hurts and the restoration of things that have been broken. And when we pray for that, we are also praying that generations of hurt and generations of pain, and generations of division and strife, and generations of brokenness would be healed through the family and the people of God. And it's only God can do that. And every time the government touches it with a 10-foot pole, it backfires. But it's the people of God that will rebuild the ancient ruins, that will restore the desolations of many generations. And there's an anointing for you, not only to receive this. You know, I think about, once again, these women with their awesome songs. Hannah had a great song, Samuel's mom. It's like when these women get, get pregnant, they, they prophesy. So if you're, getting pre- if you're pregnant right now, come up and sing a special, I don't know. <laughs> Hannah gets up and she sings, and she, one of the things she says is, you lift the poor out of the ash heap. You raise up the needy and you set them with the princes of your people. You take the poor and the needy out of the ash heap and you set them up with the princes of your people. 
When Jesus told the story of the uh, sinful man, the tax collector in the temple, and the Pharisee, he spoke about how the tax collector beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Talked about how the Pharisee looked at this man over his shoulder and said, thank you, God, that I'm not like him. And Jesus made a statement that was a radical statement because it's actually the first time you see in the Gospels, it's one of the few times you see in the Gospels a direct reference to justification by faith. Jesus says, which one of these men do you think will be justified? Now, to the, to the, to the religious people of the time, they go, justification has no, nothing to do with how you're praying Justification is, did you keep the law? Did you, you have been sacrificed, has been made? But Jesus said, because of this man's knowledge and understanding that he needed God and he needed mercy, he will be justified. So Jesus goes around and he, he listen, he goes into rich people's house and he eats. He goes into poor people's house and he eats. He goes into tax collectors, he eats with Pharisees. He eats with everybody. Apparently, eating is a great form of evangelism. I'm just saying, take hope. If you can eat, you can preach. Praise the Lord. That's all I got to say. Let's go home. Uh, I'm getting there. Um, But think about a guy like Zacchaeus. He's a very rich man, extremely rich. But you know what? He's also an outcast of society. Nobody likes him. Nobody wants to be around him. He's a traitor to his own people. Jesus says, he doesn't say, hey, Jesus, can we eat? Jesus sees him in a tree. What a weirdo up in a tree. Little short dude up in a tree. And Jesus says, we must eat together. Get down. We're going to eat together. He goes to his house and something happens in that encounter. And we're not told about the conversation. We're not told what was served. But we are told at some point Zacchaeus can't take it anymore. And he stands up and he says, if I've stolen anything, I'll pay it back. I'll pay it back four times what I stole. I want to give it all back. What happened to the man? What happened to him? Jesus. And here's what happened. Here was the radical move. Jesus found him worthy to go into his house and eat with him. Jesus went to him. Sure, he came to a meeting up in a tree. He came to watch Jesus go by, but it was Jesus that went to his house. And by going to his house, he said something. And Jesus took hits for this. Jesus took reputation hits for this with his own friends. Jesus was called a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus, people were implying that he was a sinner because he hung out with them. But something happened in this time that took a poor man who was really a rich man, but a poor man, if you know what I mean. He was a poor, poor, poor man. Doesn't matter how much money he had, he was a very poor man. And he took this man and he lifted him. The presence of Jesus changed Zacchaeus. And if Jesus dwells in you, what could the presence of Jesus do? Maybe you're the brokenhearted today. Maybe you are the afflicted today, but maybe you've been that person. You're not that person anymore, but you are the one that's been anointed to bring good news 
to the poor, the afflicted, and the brokenhearted. And to say, those ashes you've been carrying around, the ashes of your hurt and your past, the ashes that have defined you, God wants to replace those ashes with something far better. That mourning that you've been carrying with you. You see, mourning doesn't just mean someone who goes around because someone died. There are people that live with a spirit of mourning all their life. No matter what happens, they're hurting. No matter what happens, they're broken. He says, I want to replace that mourning with the oil of gladness, the anointing of gladness. Do you know there's an anointing just to be happy, just to be joyful? Then he says, I'm going to take you and that spirit of fainting that says you're going to give up. You can't do this anymore. You, you want to kill yourself or maybe you just want to go home and just stay in bed all day. Maybe every time you've tried, you've failed, so you don't want to try anymore. I'm going to give you praise. I'm going to fill you with praise. You're going to know you have a reason to praise. And when you praise, you're going to feel not like I can't do it anymore, but I can do all things through him. I'm going to replant you. I'm going to take you out of that parched ground where you looked around you trying to find something. You hoped the government would help. They couldn't help. You hoped your friends could help. They couldn't help. You hoped your job could help. They couldn't help. You hoped maybe all this would fix you, but it never did. And I'm going to replant you into rich soil. And I'm going to let your roots extend to my stream. Then people are going to look at you, and I'm going to be glorified because they go, that guy, that lady never could have done this stuff. And look what God's done. Then I'm going to send you back to ruined places. If you want something to read when you go home, I would read it today, but I I want you to just digest what we've already talked about. Read Isaiah 58. And see how the anointing of God follows those that get on the mission of finding those that need hope, bringing hope, and finding those that are broken and bringing them the gospel. Of rebuilding of taking the poor in, of taking the broken in. And he says, if you do all these things, then my light will break forth before you. My glory will break out. Everybody wants the glory of the Lord to break out, right? We read Isaiah 58, there is a direct pathway to that. So as I was praying about this set of weeks when we'd be going and studying Luke 4, I felt the Spirit lead me to say this and to do this. That every week, we all should believe that this is for all of us, yeah? But every week, to give an opportunity, because every week, the Spirit of God is going to move on some hearts, and they, you're going to feel a pull to this. Now, I, I don't, maybe, you, maybe you'll feel that every single week, maybe you won't. But I believe that there's some, even today, that God's already begun to talk to you about this. And if you were to compare notes... Maybe what God said to you about this and God said to that person are miles apart. Maybe they actually work together. But if the Lord is speaking this to you, then every week that we talk about the next step and the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do this, to do this, to do this, to do this, for those of you that God is specifically pulling your heart in this direction and saying, I'm giving you a plan. Here's how you play into it then I'm supposed to, we're supposed to pray over you, just lay hands on you, and to solidify that in you, and then I want you to run with it. And sometimes running is patience. Sometimes running is waiting for the moment where the door opens. 
but that's still running forward, still going after it. And if you say, I believe all this and I know I'm part of this, but you know, I'm doing it or uh, I, I know I want to be a part of it, but I'm not, there's nothing particularly that's coming up. That's fine. You reach out and stretch your hands towards somebody who is. But if this morning God was working on your heart in this area, I can't tell you what that looks like. And I know there's spiritual poor and there's physically poor and there's all, there's all this stuff. We talked about a lot of angles and I hope we didn't put too much into it to mix it all up. But God has sent his people to rebuild broken things, to bind up broken hearts, to redeem things that were lost. And you're being sent. Not just, thank God, I want this to be a place where the brokenhearted can come. We all want this to be a place where brokenhearted people can come. We want this to be a place where afflicted people can find healing. Right? But I also believe that the Spirit of the Lord sent me to do this. I believe you need to be sent. So the first part of being sent is hearing the voice of God. And some of you have heard his voice this morning and we want to acknowledge that voice and maybe all you're saying this morning is, yes, Lord, and you don't know the next step. That's okay. We want to lay our hands on you and confirm it in your own heart today. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray.